I want to take time to uh, quickly, I shouldn't say quickly, take time to thank uh, the Modens uh, for the landscaping job that they have been doing outside, uh, for Roger and his mowing, and I'm not sure who else he's got on his mowing crew, um, but what they've done out in the uh, parking lot, the exterior of the church, I really appreciate. We obviously want to grow inside, um, but I appreciate those who take care of the buildings and, um, and the landscaping. And this past, as you noticed this past week, the parking lot got completed. A year later, that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, we anticipated and slowly, thank you, Lord, okay. But then it actually got finished, finished with lines. There's a few more lines to be painted. Um, but there's a lot of work that takes place, and I didn't know if you realize what goes into the parking lot when you're putting down the lines. There's a lot of mapping. There are measuring. There's chalking of the lines, and much more to do before you even paint the lines. And it took three hours plus on Friday night doing all that until it got dark. And, and um, so I really want to thank Mike Colin and Andy Pena and Lupe Cantu for helping out with that. And and then they came back, uh, Mike and Andy came back yesterday. I heard 6 in the morning till 3.45 and then something about running out of paint, whatever. Um, I couldn't believe you were here that long in the heat. Thank you so much. Um, but here's what I know about painting these lines. Once you put them down, there's no erasing the lines. There's no oops and there's no whiteout for parking lot lines. Um, so the goal is straight lines, a lot of pre-work, Let's get down as many lines as possible in an orderly fashion to park as many cars as possible, right? Well, on Friday night, we were measuring the lines that were going to get painted yesterday. And at one location, we, we'd measured off everything. At one location, we were off three inches. Three inches? How do we, you know, and it's sort of frustrating because you're measuring in just the one spot, three inches. And I thought about it for a while. You know, we were like, I think we, none of us said anything, but we all had the same thing in mind. It's three inches. Who cares? I don't think anybody's going to be getting out of their car like, oh, if I just had three more inches, I could have gotten out. Um, we were all good. So we went on. But then I thought about this, and I told the guys, I said, but here's the, here's the problem. If these, this parking lot extended all the way to Florida, we'd be off about 300 miles. Okay, that's sort of the way it works when you misalign something. So I thought about this a little bit more, and I want you to help understand how this works spiritually, but I'll give you the point physically. Okay? If... I'm off 1% in alignment. Eventually, down the road, it is a larger percentage. Give you an example. On a football field, if I'm in the end zone and I start to go drawing a line and I'm off just 1%, when I get to the other end of the football field, I'm going to be off two yards. Let's get a little bit more drastic here. Let's say I get on an airplane in Atlanta and I'm going to fly to Seattle. If the coordinates on the airplane are off 1%, I will end up in Oregon. Okay? How important is that 1% misalignment? It's pretty huge, isn't it, as life extends? Now, I want you to think about this. Apply this now to relationships. Okay? Think about the relationships you have. When I do marriage counseling with couples that are going to get married, and I sit down with them the first time together, the first question I ask these couples is this. How long do you plan to be married to each other? And they look at each other and they're like, I think we're in the wrong place. This pastor is supposed to be marrying us and he wants to know how long we want to be married. Well, how long do you want to be married? Two years? Five years? 
25 years? You want to have your 50th wedding anniversary or till death do us part? And every answer is till death do us part, right? Every time. Think about your relationships you have, your friendships you have. The friendships you have with people when you like graduate from high school, it isn't one of those, I just want to be friends till graduation high school. After high school, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Okay? That'd be ridiculous, right? Now, I, I started to go down this road with the first service saying, just, let's go like junior high girls and friendships, okay? And I was like, let's not go there. Um, relationships are all over the place, okay? The thing is, when we start a relationship with somebody, our thoughts are, I want to be their friend, what? Forever, right? None of us go into a relationship, a friendship, saying, I'm only looking for a friend for two days. Because after three days, I'm good to find somebody else. We find people we want to connect to and relate to, right? But here's the thing. How do we maintain those relationships? Because if you are off 1% in your relationship or in your marriage, this is what happens. You draw apart from each other. It's important in your marriage and in your friendships and your relationships that we stay aligned with God and one another and continue in our relationship with each other. Is there a tool to help us with this? Because in doing the parking lots, we had a lot of tools. But how about relationships? What tool do you use to keep your relationships in line with God without wavering or falling apart? Because the world that we live in right now is a world that pulls people apart. And then what we've been talking about in love and war and the conflict and relationships, I want you to understand, there's a world system that wants you to do this. The world doesn't want you to come together. The world doesn't want husbands and wives celebrating a relationship together in 50th wedding anniversaries or friendships to be friends forever. Conflict is always right around the corner. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. This is the tool that we're going to use to help us in our relationships to keep us in alignment. God's Word. God's word, God's spirit keeps us in that perfect alignment. It's not easy, it is hard, it is tedious, it is a matter of continual growth and transformation, but that's what we use his spirit, his word to help us stay in alignment to better our relationships. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 4, let me uh, review here where we've been, what we know about God. And that is this, God values relationships. We said God created these relationships. We were created to be in a relationship with him. That's made clear in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. All that God created, he looked at it, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And the first time we hear God say something in the Bible about not being good, it is where? A man would be alone. That's not good. So God creates woman. But more important than the relationship that God created between man and woman was the relationship that he has with us. Our relationship with God. The ultimate relationship. God created us to be in relationship with him. Exodus chapter 34 verse 14. We referred to this verse before a few weeks ago. That most important relationship establishes the relationship between us and God. We've laid down the foundational truths in the previous sermons that here's the thing. Conflicts cannot be solved between you and I until we are reconciled with God. Once we are good with God, our relationships have a better chance of surviving and thriving. 
But the broken relationships we have with each other are going to remain broken until we get healing with God first, and then we can seek healing in those relationships. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of Jesus Christ. And we need the wisdom of God to do direct and help us in these relationships. But then as we were talking about this and going on, we said this. Sin, that's disobedience to God, disrupts our relationship with him. It came through Adam's disobedience. And at the very beginning, the relationship between God and man was destroyed, was broken. But God, in his grace, extends his love towards Adam and towards us. And while that we were still sinners, Christ died for you and I. To heal that relationship, to reconcile our relationship with him. God establishes an unconditional love towards mankind in a covenant relationship. A covenant is much different than a contract or a shaking of the hands or a marriage certificate that you sign. It's a sacred pledge based on trust between two parties. And God said, I am going to bless you. I am going to love you. And he expects that reciprocal love given back towards him. But we struggle with that, don't we, because of sin. Genesis chapter 3, God promises a deliverer. If you remember Genesis 3.15, we read that. And um, in that passage, we find out that there is one who will victoriously defeat sin and death. God's told him in the garden, somewhere along the line, it's going to happen. A deliverer is going to come. And this deliverer will reconcile relationships, especially the relationship we have with God. He was promised. But here's the thing. Adam and Eve did not have God's timeline, just like you and I don't have God's timeline. So Adam and Eve did not know when this deliverer was going to come. So when Eve becomes pregnant, they may be asking themselves, could this be the deliverer? I I, I don't know. We know it isn't, but Adam and Eve did not know. So in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. Let's read there together. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, named him Abel. Now, I want to pause for a second, because sometimes we open up the Bible, we get into his word, and we're reading, and we're not really relating, because we, we, we picture it as one of those long, long time ago in a galaxy far away type materials that we read, and we don't get it. And we don't realize this is history taking place. This happened. What did they feel like when it was going through? Church, this was the first pregnancy. Think about it. Adam and Eve were created already mature. In shape and size and everything. This is the first pregnancy. Did Eve know what was going to happen in her body? Did she know how long she would carry that baby? She's like, whoa, what's going on? What do I have in me? And it's like, oh, then maybe God intervened and said, you have a child in you. You have a little you in you. Oh, I don't know how he would explain that, but he did. Did she know how long? One month, two months, nine months, ten years? How long is this going to be happening? First pregnancy. She didn't have that what to expect when you're expecting book. You know what I'm saying? She didn't have that. Did God tell her? I don't know. When she gave birth, did she know what contractions were? Did she know the birth pain? Did she have a breathing pattern? I don't even remember what it was. I remember going to that class. Okay. Did she have ice chips? Give me some ice chips now. And Adam's like, what are ice chips? I don't know. What was going on? You know, again, I'm not to make light of this, but 
put yourself there. This was a first. This was incredible what was going to take place. So when Cain is born, what are they thinking? Well, look at this. A little us, right? Could, could this be the deliverer that God spoke of? The one that will conquer death and sin. The one that will reconcile our relationship. Could this be the Messiah? Think about it. They've never seen this before. The name Cain basically meant, I've got him, or here he is. Maybe Eve thought that Cain was the seed that God promised, and so she thought, hey, I have the man from the Lord. This is him, so I'm going to name him something that sort of resembles that. And when you think about this, parents, aren't we like Eve? Don't we expect greatness from our kids? Don't we expect the best from our children? We wonder if our children are destined for greatness. And maybe Adam and Eve are thinking the same thing. Our son, he's going to be the deliverer, right? We have great expectations, high hopes for our children. They expected him to be the deliverer. And he ended up being the first murderer. Wow. Crushing hope, right? Look at verse 2. We'll continue back in there. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. Verse 3. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry. And he looked dejected. Now, Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer, basically. And I love how we discover in Genesis from the first family, church, please listen, from the first family, we discover these were not cavemen. Didn't we evolve from cavemen? Let's go back to the first family. Farmers, shepherds, they talked, they didn't grunt. So everything you've watched on TV, wipe it off. Wipe it clean, please. Nothing like being lied to, right? This is how God started creation right here right we see that both made a sacrifice to god both god uh, but god only accepted abel's sacrifice have you ever asked why why did he accept one and not the other why did god reject cain's sacrifice was it his attitude there's a verse proverbs uh, 21 27 that says this the sacrifice of an evil person is detestable especially when it's offered with the wrong motives was God evaluating the heart of Cain and saying he's not giving with the right attitude? I mean, God wants us to give. He wants us to give cheerfully. He wants us to give to missionaries, to churches. He wants us to give. But sometimes we're like, I don't want to give. You know, God looks at our heart, right, when we make these sacrifices. Was there something going on in the heart of Cain? We don't know. Was well, it an issue of Cain giving his best? Maybe that wasn't his best fruits from the field. We don't know. Some suggest that it was the wrong kind of offering. Again, theologians sort of go back and forth on why one was accepted and one was rejected. Uh, some believe that God required at the time a blood offering. Remember, sin means death. So innocent victims needed to be sacrificed for the sin. The lambs were sacrificed, a blood offering was needed to cover those sins, those wrongdoings. Abel did. Cain was what? His vegetables, his fruits, the best of, right? We know that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed for man's sin once and for all, as we read. 
Cain was maybe, again, wrong kind of sacrifice, heart issue. We don't know. But we do know this. God pointed it out to him and says, I've rejected your sacrifice, but that's not the end of the story. God's like, I'm going to give you another shot here. It wasn't like Cain said, or God said, Cain, that's it. You blew it. We're done. God came back to Cain to get things right with Cain. Look at verse 6. God says, why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. See, God saw the state of Cain's heart. God cared enough to confront Cain in his moment of sin and give Cain the freedom to choose. Cain could have changed this right there, right then. The responsibility laid with Cain, it could have changed. A proper sacrifice could have been made if Cain so chose. And here's what we discover in life. There's always a right and wrong choice. Always. For every wrong choice that you and I have made, there is a right choice we could have made. And for every right choice that is laid before us, there's also a wrong choice we can take as well. Cain was told to do the right thing. So obviously, Cain and Abel had been raised to know the right way and the wrong way of worshiping God. Cain had rejected the right way of worshiping God. God gave Cain a warning, and Cain refused to come to God's turn. And he flirted with disaster. And God even pointed out, be careful, sin is crouching at your door. Be careful, it doesn't master you. So here's the point of truth. Listen very carefully, church. If you don't deal with sin, sin will master you. Isn't that true? If you don't deal with sin, it will master you. How do you react when somebody suggests that you've done something wrong? I mean, do you move to correct the mistake or deny it that it needs to be corrected? When somebody comes to you and they point something out and they say, hey, you know what's going on in your life? This needs to be changed. How do you handle those moments? Do you, do you ignore it or do you examine what they're saying and say, I wonder if this is true. Do I need to change something? Well, after Cain's gift was rejected, God gave him the chance to right his wrong and try it again. Church, listen very carefully. Let me say it again. Sin is crouching at our doors at all times. It wants to devour you. It wants to deceive you. Sin is destructive in power. It will sometimes even cross that threshold of the door and pounce on you. It desires to master us. But we know this is true. There's only one master, and that is God. And when we don't choose God, we choose the way of the world. It's like a teeter-totter. If you sit on one end, the other end's going up, right? You choose God, then you're not choosing the world. When you choose the world, you're not choosing God. Whichever way you look at it, if I choose God, I'm not going with the world. But if I say, well, I'm not really choosing God, guess what? You just chose the world. Be careful. Cain didn't choose God to be his master, so he became enslaved by Satan. Sin was crouching at the door, and it jumped on him. And he becomes the first murderer. 
Look at verse 8 with me. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He plotted it and then he did it. He was sneaky, but you know what? He got caught. You always get caught. We may think when no one is around, nobody sees it. God sees it. Whatever it was that you looked at on the computer or on your TV by yourself, God saw it too. That test you were taking and you cheated, you looked over the answer, nobody saw you, God saw it. That thing you took when nobody was looking, God saw it. When you're in the parking lot and you, oops, I just sort of dinged that vehicle, and you look around like, eh, nobody saw it. And you pull out, God saw it. And our security cameras. <laughs> Cain is not out of God's sight. Neither are we. God sees everything. Look at verse 9. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Hey, where's your brother? Where is Abel? God knew, okay? <laughs> Some people are like, well, how come God didn't? God knew. He's coming to Cain, confronting him, drawing out truth from Cain. Cain says what? I don't know. Lie. And Cain responded, am I, bro- am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's keeper? At this point, Cain lies to God, and to top it off, he changes the subject by throwing a question back at God, harshly directed at him, suggesting that his brother is not his responsibility. We have responsibility. We are responsible within our relationships to always do the right thing. Always. The godly thing. The worldly system says... Do what you want. Are you angry with that person? Go ahead. Seek vengeance on them. Fight them, hurt them, do whatever. Take it out on somebody. Oh, are you depressed? Then do whatever you do to make yourself feel better. Oh, you you want something? Go get it. Just go get it. You deserve it. Make yourself feel better. That is the world system. But what we learn that is apart from God, it always what? It leads to pain and destruction. Always. Adam and Eve sinned against God. Remember how it all started? They, they took something that they weren't supposed to take off. And God approached them. And they blamed each other. They even blamed God, right? And then their children. What happens to their children? Oh, it's a step further. They're not only taking something that doesn't belong to them. Now they murder and lie. See how sin planted grows? It changes. And we discover right away from the beginning of time in Genesis, sin destroys relationships with God and with each other. So what do we do with this? Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. Go to the New Testament now. While you're turning there, you're getting past all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the Romans, a bunch of small letters written by Paul. You get towards the back of the Bible where James is. It's all the way back there, but you know what? James was actually the first book written in the New Testament. But it finds its way in the back. It's written by the brother of Jesus. And he helps us understand the conflict in relationship. He, he asks a question and then he examines it. And then he presents an answer. It's, when you look at this chapter, it's like he's like a doctor examining the patient. You know, like when you go into the doctor and, and you've got some kind of sickness and you, you've got these symptoms and a doctor asks you questions, you share the symptoms, he looks at the symptoms and then he says, okay, here's your symptoms. Now, there's probably a cause for those symptoms and I'm going to give you the cure. 
Make sense? That's what James does here. There's symptoms going on around us right now. And here's the cause and here's the cure. And we have hope that the doctor is going to answer our questions for us, right? How disappointing when you walk into the doctor's office, you share your symptoms. He goes, huh, I'm not sure what the cause is. Let's try 20 different things. We get frustrated, don't we? And then maybe once they find the cause, well, then there's no cure. How even more frustrating. The good news is, let me hear you say good news. The good news is you have not just the symptoms and the consequences, but you've got an understanding of the cause, and you've got the cure in your hands right now. You've got the cure in your hands. Look at verse 1, James chapter 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to, make, to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. James asks the question here, what's the source of all quarrels and conflicts? Now, why do you think he's asking the question? Because it's going on in the church. He's amongst the Christian brothers and sisters, and there's fighting, and there's quarreling, and there's relationship issues. And he steps back, he's like, what is causing all this conflict? Why can't we just all get along, right? Now, let's pause for a second. Let me ask you that question. Is there any quarreling going on at home right now? Any arguing between you and your spouse, between you and your parents, between you and brothers and sisters, family members? Are there any issues going on at work? Do you see the consequences of a broken relationship? The conflict, the quarreling, the fighting, the evidence is obvious, isn't it? So James tells us, you know what the cause of the conflict is? You want to know why that's going on? Brace yourself. It's the evil desires. It's the passions within us. And the Greek word was actually hedonai, which is, means sensual desire, desire lust, um, pleasure. It's our consuming passion for self-gratification. Hedonism is what they called it in biblical times. The word hedonism comes from the ancient Greek for pleasure. It's an addictive self-love. It's a me-first attitude. You envy, you covet, you don't get what you want, so you just fight. You didn't get your way, so you get angry. There's a line drawn, and you want to cross it to get to what's on the other side. And somebody's told you, you can't cross that line, that makes you mad. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this. We have what's called an inflatable bouncy house. And uh, somebody uh, in our church, when they had passed away, um, some money came in. They said, use this for the children of the church. So we thought about it. It's like, well, we don't want to use it just to buy pizza or stuff. Let's get something that can be used on a continual basis in honor of that family. So we used it, and uh, most of it, to get this bouncy house. And it has been used, and it has been used tremendously. The kids love it. And we had it set up a few weeks ago. And the kids are getting in there, bouncing around. It's like, okay, there's only so many can be in, which means there's a lot of kids out here waiting to get in. And then I have to have my little timer to make sure, okay, equal amount of time. So 
we aren't hogging it all right. It's like, okay, we're going to, every so often, I'll let you know when your time's up and you'll come out and the others come in. Now, you see at the front of the slide, the little slides that come down the little steps? That's how they go in and out. Even though there's a little net opening on the side, that's the way everybody wants to go in and out because that's the most fun way to go out, right? So all the kids that are waiting to go in are up by the front of the slide. And the kids coming out of are coming down the slide. Let me hear you say slide. If you are 16 years and younger, let me hear you say slide. Oh, Roger, you are not 16. Oh, Roger, I love you. So here's the, here's the thing. Those kids don't slide down. They roll down the slide. It's like, no, it's a slide. You just, shoosh. Parents, teach your kids the difference between rolling and sliding, okay? So these kids are just tumbling and rolling and sliding, and boom, they're coming out, okay? And I th- thought about it. It's like, somebody's going to get hurt. I don't want anyone to get hurt. So I took a shoe, because the kids had their shoes off. I took a shoe, walked away from the slide, put the shoe down, and I said, okay, guys, I want you to line up behind this. And they're like, getting, you know, everybody's like, getting up as close as they could without going over the line, right? And then they got the slide up here. And I was, when it's your turn, they're going to come out, and then the next five or six will go in. That's awesome, right? Because we don't want anybody getting hurt. But every kid, well, almost every kid, and parents, I know some of you are saying, not my kid, your kid, okay? (laughs) They're like this. You know, they would do some of that, and then some of them were like even... Touch the bouncy house and get back. <laughs> like, I just got away with touching it, and he said not to. And, of course, I'm trying to make sure nobody gets hurt. So I'm like, come on, guys. I'm like, get down to level. I'm looking at it. Listen, you got to make sure. You know, All of a sudden, I become what? Pastor no fun, okay? Because I'm telling them to stay behind the line, you know? I've got a job this summer. I'm going to be working at the fair. Anyway, these, but, but the thing is, my point is, I'm, I drew this line for a reason. I don't want you to get hurt. But the natural tendency inside of all of us is, we just want to cross that line because there's a line to cross. Isn't God the same way? He sort of says, these are the commands I've given you. This is where it is healthy, it is safe. This is what I've drawn the line. And what do we do? Our natural tendency is to want to cross that line. And God just says, I'm trying to protect you. And we're like, I just want to have fun because I want to touch it because it brings me pleasure. I don't get that. But anyway... That's what happens. So as we see this war that's raging us in within leads to conflict with one another. It's in the news every day. Don't you see it? You turn on the news. People are more angry with each other and hateful with each other than they are loving each other today. Why is that? Because I want it my way. And that person over there, that group over there, they've told me I can't. Well, I can. Because I have freedom and da 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 It's like... It leads to conflict, doesn't it? Symptoms are evident. And the cause, we have that pulsating desire to have. We get blocked. You can't get what you want, so what do you do? You get mad. You don't have the things you want, so you try to get it from something other than God. It's a selfish pride and craving, thinking that sensual pleasure should be achieved at all costs. And we think, this is what's going to make me happy. I want this. And then the conflict starts, right? And that's not just the voice of a child. That's the voice of an adult as well. What do we do? Look at verse 2. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have. You can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take away from them. Yet you don't have what you want 
because you don't ask God for it. Even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. We attempt to fulfill our desires apart from God. And what is it that we want? I'm going to tell you this. Apart from God is the wrong strategy. You know, in the love stories, you know, you maybe read, some of you read, okay, uh, or the movies you watch, the Hallmark movies, the love stories. It's like, oh, we're so complete. Jerry Maguire, remember that movie? Some of you maybe seen that movie, maybe not. But it's in that movie, there's that famous line, you complete me, right? Baloney is what I would say, okay? Um, here's the problem. We don't complete one another. I'm sorry. It, when two people are getting married, they're like, I've got baggage in my life. I've got baggage in my life. When we get together, we're going to be complete. No, you've got double the baggage. That's the reality of it, okay? That's the reality of it. But through God, he reconciles things. He heals. He takes care of that brokenness. He takes care of that baggage. It is not one another, you and I completing one another. It is God completing us so that we can be in good relationship with one another. There's so many false teachings here So, with what's going on in the world today. And God says, let me help you with this, right? And James writes all this down and he says, here's the problem. You may have now the wrong intentions. You, first of all, you're not even going to God. First, you've got to go to God. Second of all, you've got to go with the right intentions to God as we read through this in James chapter 4. But the bottom line is when two people want their way, there's going to be conflict, Is what James tells us. And when one person, even one person in a relationship wants it to be their way, there's going to be conflict. How do we deal with this? We, uh, at this point in time, got to stop and say, oh, this would have been a great message for so-and-so to hear. We, we have to stop and say, it begins with me. I need to hear this message. A lot of times when I preach, God lays on my heart when I'm going to preach a month down the road, and sometimes God smacks me right between the eyes and says, you need to deal with this, Rex. And after you're done dealing with it, and while you're dealing with it, share this with the church, because I'm sure other people are dealing with it too. So we can all probably sit here right now and say, okay, we need to hear this, but what do we do? We are, we are God's people with a relationship with him, possessing the victorious spirit of God living within us in a fallen world full of temptation with false teaching and sin crouching at our door. So here's what we need to do. We need to get in alignment, going back to the parking lot idea, get back in alignment with God's word. If this is where God's word is going, we need to be in alignment with it. Not apart from it. There's a lot of, obviously, talk shows, news things that you can watch online or or media stuff that you can say, oh, I like their opinion. Opinion, opinion, opinion is not always truth. Not always truth. You want to know where to start? Start with truth. Align yourselves there. Make sure you go to God first, is what James is telling us here. He continues in verse 4. We'll wrap this up. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you do suppose that it's no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously? Or the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Listen to verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit. Humble yourself. 
His way is the best. Admit it. That's where Cain fell short. Cain was like, no, my way. And God was saying, submit here. My way is the right way. Cain did not submit. And it led to his conflict becoming even worse to the point of murder. In our relationships with one another, it's got to start with a submission to God. I want a great relationship with the people around me. I better be submitting to God first. You've got to surrender to him first. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Praise God and give him the glory that he gave us the proper sacrifice. When conflict arises in our hearts, listen carefully. Listen carefully. When that conflict starts to rise in you and another person, listen carefully. Because God's most likely right there saying, hey, hey, you have an opportunity to get it right. You have an opportunity to respond in a godly way like he did to Cain. You have a choice to to master sin and not make it your companion. When you're about ready in that relationship with somebody because you want something, you're ready to be in conflict with that person, either you can let sin master you or you can master sin. And God says, by my spirit that I have given you, I can help you master that. Do not let it master you. Make the right choice. I'm going to close with a reading I ran across from Pastor um, and author Max Lucado. He says, it's quiet, it's early, my coffee's hot, the sky is still black, the world is still asleep. The day's coming and in a few moments the day will arrive. It will roar down the track with the rising of the sun. The stillness of the dawn will be exchanged for the noise of the day. The calm of solitude will be replaced by the pounding pace of the human race. The refuge of the early morning will be invaded by decisions to be made, deadlines to be met. And for the next 12 hours, I'll be exposed to the day's demands. It's now that I must make a choice. And because of Calvary, I'm free to choose. And so I choose today to love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose love. Today I will love God and what God loves and who God loves. I choose joy today. I'll invite my God to be the God of circumstances. I will refuse the temptation to be cynical the tool of the lazy thinker. I will refuse to see people as anything less than human beings created by God. I will refuse to see any problem as anything less than than an opportunity to see God. I'll choose peace. I'll live forgiven. I will forgive so that I may live. I choose patience. I overlook the inconveniences of the world. Instead of cursing the one who takes my place, I'll invite him to do so. And rather than complain about the long wait in the line, I'll thank God for a moment to pray. Instead of clenching my fist at new assignments, I'll face them with joy and courage. I choose kindness today. I'll be kind to the poor, for they are alone. Kind to the rich, for they're afraid. And kind to the unkind, for such is how God has treated me. I choose goodness. I'll go without a dollar before I take a dishonest one. I'll be overlooked before I will boast. I will confess before I will accuse. I choose goodness. I choose faithfulness. Today I'll keep my promises. My betters, my debtors will not regret their trust. My associates will not question my word. My wife will not question my love. And my children will never fear that their father will not come home. I choose gentleness. Nothing's won by force. I choose to be gentle. If I raise my voice, may it be only in praise. If I clench my fist, may it only be in prayer. If I make a demand, may it only be of myself. I choose self-control. 
I'm a spiritual being. After this body is dead, my spirit will soar. I refuse to let what will rot rule the eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by God. I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. To these, I commit my day. And if I succeed, I'll give thanks. And if I fail, I will seek God's grace. And then when this day is done, I'll place my head on my pillow and I will rest. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome and mighty God. And God, our relationship with you is where it begins. And I thank you that you show us that Sin is crouching at our door, wanting to overtake us. You warned Cain of that. You warned us of that. And you remind us that we have that opportunity to allow you, the God of this universe, and your spirit work through us to master those moments and to not let sin control us. Because when we allow that sin to control us, it creates conflict in our relationships, which leads to worse things. God, we surrender now to you, asking you and your spirit to take over in our life what we have tried to control, what we have tried to master. We can't do that without you. God, we desire an incredible relationship with you first, and we desire a relationship that is healthy and godly with others as well. But we need your help. So God, we seek you for that today. Lord, we love you. We sing to you now, asking to help us. In my name we pray, amen.